Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Alphas. We have the honor to talk to John McNabb. John is a former VP of Dutch Bank, and he has a very special view on our industry. John, welcome. Well, thank you back for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, can you please introduce yourself? Well, I'm the CEO of Canadense uh, Corporation Back. Uh, we're an emerging DSO in central Canada. Uh, my background was in finance for a couple of decades, so I bring a business perspective to the business of dentistry, and that's how I look at it. Uh, I'm not a clinician. Um, you know, we we non-clinicians pick up a lot of uh, the clinical uh, aspects of the business by osmosis, but my my perspective on this is a strategic industry level perspective um, i did management consulting practice management consulting for a number of years and uh, specialized in practice acquisitions practice financing so that's the direction that i come from and so when i look at what we're going through now with the COVID 19 situation I'm looking at the industry from the perspective of what's going to happen to the industry at large. How does that trickle down or filter down to individual practices? What are practices going to have to do to adapt and survive in this new normal? And on your LinkedIn profile, the uh, your title is very bold. It's changing the face of dentistry in Canada. Would you care to elaborate a little more on this? Well, that, that's, that's our, our slogan, our motto in Canada. Um, and we, we adopted that when we began because we have an evidence-based, information-based approach to building uh, organizations in the dental industry. You know, much of the dental industry to date has been built on a rather opportunistic basis. Uh, there are many investor dentists out there who buy a second practice or a third practice or even a fourth or fifth practice, but it's frequently done with relatively little planning, relatively little strategy. Uh, they tend to be whatever practices are geographically close at hand. Uh, or ones where the acquiring dentist happens to know the vendor, uh, perhaps an old friend or colleague. Uh, we take a different approach. And so we, uh, we base our approach on industry research from around the world uh, on things like marketing, for example. There are some uh, very good surveys from Great Britain on marketing behavior among dental patients about the value of branding and whether a brand is a valuable issue in running a multi-practice dental organization. Uh, so we take a, an evidence-based strategic approach and that's, we think that's different from the history of a lot of dentistry in Canada, hence our slogan, Changing the Face of Dentistry. And what is your perspective about this crisis and how would this either help or won't help us as an industry? 
I think it will help. It's going to necessarily involve change. Change can be very uncomfortable. So in the short run, a lot of practitioners, a lot of practice owners may feel that it's not helping very much. But I think in the broader picture and in the medium to longer term, it will help. Uh, and there are different ways that I think it will help. One of them is that dentistry has traditionally been regarded, particularly by uh, the medical side of the, uh, of the medicine professions. Dentistry has typically been regarded as the poor sister, so to speak. The, the cousin who wasn't quite a doctor, even though they had a DR in front of their name. This is going to push or pull dentistry into the mainstream of full line medical capabilities and a recognition that dentistry is in fact um, a core member of the medical family. Why do I say that? Well, for a couple of simple reasons. Over the last generation, as you know, many dental practices have been designed specifically to minimize the feeling that one is in a medical office. There, there has been a stylistic approach to designing dental offices so that there was uh, art on all the walls and in the hallways. There were uh, pretty color schemes. The colors of the scrubs uh, were color coordinated with the pink colors in the office. Um, the operatories were designed without doors. We moved away from the old fashioned design of operatories where they had doors and floor to ceiling walls and uh, operatories were designed as semi-social spaces, not just purely medical spaces. They were intended to look nice and feel good and to enhance the patient experience when the patient was in that room. That's all well and good until you run into a situation like we have now, where we're being confronted with the fact that a socially designed facility doesn't necessarily meet all of the medical criteria that are important. So in, in the style of dental offices will change. Not necessarily in a bad way, but the guidelines, for example, in several of the provinces now are making it clear that certainly as long as COVID-19 virus is around, the regulators are going to want enclosed operatory spaces. But you know that all those guidelines are based on nothing more than fear. There's no evidence based today that that causes a risk and we're still looking into uh, finding ways because you know that in the United States, a lot of states has resumed the practice as they were before and with just um, professional discretion to, to take more uh, precaution. So the aerosol thing is at this stage here, it's everybody's improvising and there's no back uh, proof telling us that 
we have to do things differently more than just the fear and say that in, in the case of fear, we will have to take the universal precaution and the, the worst case scenario. A regulatory authority by its very nature normally operates on worst case scenario, at least on a medium case scenario. A regulator can't afford to operate on a best case scenario because if the slightest thing goes wrong, the, the regulator gets blamed for not having created a regulatory framework that is sufficient to contain any adverse incident. So what we're seeing, you're quite right, is a very different approach between the two countries. There is that that approach is symptomatic of a societal difference in how this disease is viewed and how the society-wide response has been launched. Um, Just considering that the fact that the United States, it's now the core center of the, this pandemic. They have yes. most casualties, they have the most infected cases, and still they're moving forward with least uh, restriction that we are doing so. So mainly we have to raise the question, is that even reasonable? Because we have to look at the fact that everything that the, the regulators are asking, and I understand the point of view, will cost about 25% of the, the, the value of most clinics. And this by itself will kill a lot of clinics, and it, it, it would be justified if it was proven. But if it wasn't proven, they will be even cause a worse situation than the one that they're trying to solve. Well, you asked earlier what the ramifications might be on the industry. Um, before COVID-19 really hit in March, there was a survey done just at the, at the leading edge of the initial wave of illnesses when they were starting to be reported. There was a survey done, uh, two surveys, one in Great Britain and one in Canada among uh, dental practice owners. And the results were strikingly similar in terms of their ability to withstand a significant financial shock in the industry. In both countries, very interestingly, even though there are very different healthcare systems, uh, in the United Kingdom, as you know, they have the national health system where dentistry is largely nationalized. Over here, it's essentially a private industry. But in both environments, the surveys reported that about 20% of dentists felt that they could, could live for a month with no income in the practice. Another 20 or so percent thought they could exist for about two months with no income in the practice. Beyond those timeframes, implicitly, they were in financial trouble. Either the practices were going to have to close, or they would be having trouble with their bank loans, uh, or whatever. But they were going to be in financial difficulties. And you blame them, even Aldo is going under. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> the, the point of this is dentistry has been ever since its beginning in North America for the last couple of hundred years, a very decentralized delivery system. 
small offices scattered everywhere. This, of course, was the basis for why corporate dental groups felt they had uh, a competitive advantage by aggregating, by acquiring and consolidating in the marketplace. I think that what we're seeing is the forced beginning of a consolidation in the dental industry because I think we're going to lose a significant number of the smaller practices. I don't think they're going to have the financial staying power to make it through this. And I think there, there will be a lot of forced sellers in the marketplace in the coming months as dentists uh, decide that it's better to try to extract whatever equity is left in the value of their practice and to sell it to some larger financially stronger organization that can do something with it. Not only are we going to see that kind of consolidation, I think, but we're going to see a reduction in the number of dental offices because as the small ones are acquired, they will be physically consolidated by the larger, stronger operators. And that I think we do agree because if you look at the math, it's hard to see anything else. But my question would be that what would a dentist, because it's still a choice at this stage, more than the financial burden that they, they have to face right now, what would be the improvement in uh, day, the life, the quality of care, or what would they gain out of this transaction more than the fact that they are forced to sell because they are back in the corner? Well, there, are, there would be several immediate financial advantages. I mean, one is if you're the owner of a small practice and you don't have the financial resources to implement the changes in the facility that are necessary to reopen it at a level that is compliant for regulatory purposes, it means that you either have to use personal financial assets to do it, which could, could be a, a substantial item, or you become even more deeply indebted uh, because you may have to extend your bank loan to spend a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars to retrofit and renovate your practice. Um, many dentists, I think, are going to look at this and say, do I want to spend X number of tens of thousands of dollars or a couple of hundred thousand dollars on these kinds of renovations and improvements and still have a restricted patient flow where I don't have the number of patients coming through the office that I did before. I can't generate the same amount of revenue. I can't pay off my bank loan in the way that I did before. The bank is putting pressure on me. It's better to sell that office for many of them and pocket a sizable chunk of equity that they have built up than to live with persistent operating and financial problems. You know that I'm sharing your diagnosis because if I look at the market, I think that you're right on point on the fact that the hard times are coming. Many, uh, and I do share that point of view. That's also why I have taken the initiative to, to try to fight for them, to try to, to find ways for them to just go 
uh, tourist crisis and to keep a certain feeling of control somehow. But my, my, my question here is, and I'm being a friend, if we are moving forward to consolidation, and we know that this is coming, because in the United States, more than half of the portion of dentists already under a certain kind of umbrella. In Canada, it's about five to 10%. So there's a heavy trend coming. So on that, you're right. But I'm, I'm asking, is there any, anything more than just financial gain? And actually, it's not even financial gain, it's just to escape a burden. Is there anything that we can do so the future of this profession will be brighter? Not just to reorganize, because you know that in the United States, a lot of my colleagues are from big DSO, and some of them are going under or have, have financial trouble because they have big so overhead. So mainly they are facing the same problem that we have here, even if they already organize. So let's say that we try to build smarter. Is there a way for us to get out of this one ahead? I think there are ways for the industry in general, and of course that means all the individual little practices in the industry, to emerge from this as a better profession and a stronger profession. But there's going to be some short-term pain. I agree with you, even the large DSOs in the United States are not immune to the financial problems that this is causing because many of them have business models that are built on using highly leveraged acquisition programs where they borrow all or virtually all of the money to buy the practices that they acquire. So they have exactly the same financial issues that a small operator does, just magnified by three or four <laughs> or 800 times. Um, and so yes, there will be some bankruptcies, there will be some chapter 11 reorganizations, there will be some consolidation even among the big operators. The weak ones will be taken over by the stronger large ones. But I think that I think the benefit to this profession as a profession is that by focusing on the medical strengths that dentistry can bring to the practice of dentistry. And by that I mean enhanced infection prevention and control. That's obvious in the practice. That's obvious in facility design. Not just a sterilization room that's hidden away at the back of the office, but procedures and protocols that are evident among all the staff in everything they do every time they walk into an operatory, every time they put on protective equipment, uh, the way in which the reception area is designed to provide distancing and protection for front office staff and for patients in the waiting room. There are many things that this profession can do to show that it's at the leading edge of responding to COVID-19 as a social slash medical issue. Um, the, the, the days of trying to overcome dental anxiety as we knew that term in the past, where we tried to make the visit for the patient uh, as friendly and happy as possible with 
Disney cartoons playing on the on the TV in the ceiling of the operatory. Those days are no longer the focus. Dentistry is going to have to differentiate itself from what it used to be, or else people aren't going to want to come back into the practices. What I'm hearing anecdotally is that patients, although they may have a, a feeling that they need treatment or want treatment, they may want to get their teeth clean, they may want the hygiene appointment, they may want to have some of the cosmetic work done that they were intending to do, but it didn't quite happen when things went off the rails in March with COVID-19. They look at these pictures of medical professionals in the hospitals wearing full PPE with face shields and uh, masks and goggles and ankle length waterproof smocks. And they're really disturbed by that image. And they tell me anecdotally at least that that would really bother them if they went back into their dentist's office and the first uh, episode that they had with their dentist or their hygienist, where that clinician is going to be very up close and personal in their face, is, is if the clinician is, you know, looks like a warrior out of Star Wars in their, in their personal protective equipment. So there's going to be a psychological issue to overcome to bring patients back. There is going, there's going to be a psychological issue with respect to distancing. Dentistry is- the, the social distance thing is something that will stay forever based on what you're telling me. Yes. Um, because I have to challenge you on this, you know that here at home, Quebec was one of the first province to take very strong measure to limit um, the infection. And right now we have the highest numbers of cases in Canada. And uh, UK did not do anything and said that let's, let's just go free for all. They are way behind the United States at this stage. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, it, there's, there's no proof that social distancing will save something. I'm not saying that it's not doing any work, but we are just acting out of fear and we're shooting in the, just blindly, hoping that it will work. Whether or not social distancing actually works, and that's probably another conversation uh, completely, um, people have been told that it's important. And the longer that this goes on, and the more that people are told that it's important, the more they come to believe that. So you know that we're coming from opposite point of view, but I do respect your point of view. And what we're we trying to do here, trying to find a new relevancy to our profession is, I, I, I really believe that we should build from the difference. Uh, you know that I spent my, my entire career trying to make dentistry more humane, try to remove the filters between a dentist and his patient, and right now, uh, what I'm hearing from you, it's we won't have the choice than to put more filters in. That being said, I, I, I love the fact that we can talk respectfully and with uh, 
an open mind to say, how are we going to build this? Because I think that the only way that we're going to go ahead of this is when people like you and I, from different perspectives, can talk and not find a compromise, but say, okay, where are we wrong or where are we, the, the other party has a point that we need to address? Because I think that the, the time for half measure and to see who's the, uh, the strongest, that time is over. Because right now we are all facing a virus. And we both understand that fear right now is the most, uh, is the most important enemy because that will make us do a lot of stupid things without any uh, proof. We're still in the early days, you're quite right, of nailing down the proof, so to speak, on many of the uh, clinical aspects of COVID-19. But here's an example of how dentistry, I think as a profession, as an industry can enhance itself, not just in the public eye for patients, but also relative to other branches of the medical world and take a leading role. And it's in, in air quality, in dental offices. You know, we've neglected historically the whole issue of aerosols in dental offices. We've just accepted that that was part of the business, so to speak. And so for several decades now, ultrasonic uh, scalers, have, cabotrons have been part for the course in hygiene. Uh, High-speed handpieces, air, air water syringes have all become just everyday pieces of equipment in offices. Now, how do we deal with this? Because the regulatory authorities are making it very clear they're concerned about this issue. Whether they have, in your view, sufficient clinical evidence for their concern um, is probably irrelevant because they get to call the shots as the regulatory agencies. It may be that a year from now, we will look back and say they were too strict or they went a little overboard in their interpretation and their approach, but for now, this is what we have to operate with. So, the regulators are taking the approach that aerosols are a significant problem, but if you can remove the aerosols, then you don't have a significant problem anymore. And the guidelines in Saskatchewan and also in Ontario now are allowing for the fact that if you have air purification uh, modalities in place, that you don't have to keep your operatories empty for two or three hours after each appointment to let aerosols settle. If you can evacuate the aerosols quickly and efficiently with an air purification system, you don't have significant downtime in your operatory anymore. The downtime is one of the things that will make life most difficult from both an operational and a financial point of view for clinicians in the practices. If those guidelines remain in place for very long, where you have to leave an operatory empty for two hours in Saskatchewan, for three hours in Ontario, after you do an aerosol generating procedure plus cleaning time so 
it's two hours plus or three hours plus. That operatory is out of commission for 40 to 50% of its potential time during a day. You only get two or maybe three appointments out of that operatory at best, where before you were getting six or seven or eight in a day. Revenue is just shot to pieces. You need to get the aerosols out of that operatory. Well, you get them out with an air filtration system. There are some companies around that sell good ones, small portable units that you can put individual units in each operatory, larger systems that can feed into HVAC systems for the whole office. This is a key issue that clinicians, practice owners, need to address now, right at the very beginning of this process, because it's one of the ways that they can become masters of their own destiny again. Sir, I agree with you the, with the fact that we have the chance of taking a leading role in moving forward, but I do disagree with the fact that we have to react not toward the way that the regulators will, but we have to react in the way of science will tell us to do. Because right now what you are proposing, if I do understand correctly, it's we know how the regulator will, will, will rule, and let's try to adapt to that. What I'm saying here is, Let's take the leading role of seeing what it's what and address that issue. I agree with you that that discussion needs to happen within the profession. We're doing it right now. <laughs> well, exactly. In fact, in Ontario, there's a very vibrant discussion going on in the profession between the profession and the regulator. Because the regulator has taken a fairly tough stance. And this is all due respect to regulator. I, I do understand the point of view and where they're coming from, but at this stage, we, we have to look at facts and science since we are smart people. But we cannot just, I think, in my opinion, anticipate what they will think and then react to that. Now we have to help them to provide with facts and with alternatives so they have something to think about. I agree with you, and that's uh, there. There is a very lively discussion going on behind the scenes. Uh, has been for the last couple of weeks in Ontario between leading members of the profession and uh, the appropriate officials at the RCDSO. Actually, you know uh, that we are doing this right now, but throughout the countries around the world of dentists. So mainly we're learning from every country because the problem with our profession, and this is with all due respect, it's we all have been decentralized, as you said, and every state or every uh, province have their own board and they have their own decision process. But we're all facing the same issue throughout the world. And as soon as we start to put people from different areas of the world talking about how uh, they are seeing things, and we did that since the beginning of this crisis, the perspective is way broader and bigger, and also it allows us to learn from what another country has done. Just like in France, this, for, for example, they have no problem with having patients coming back because everything is paid by the state. But now they are scared of what the state will impose on them to resume. But they learn a lot from all my colleagues from Florida and from California and say that, oh yeah, we're resuming and things are pretty back to normal. So the idea here is, and I, I do agree with the fact that we have to take an active and leading role, but let's find the facts to put on the table and make sure that the regulators have to deal with those facts, not with the fear. 
I agree that everything should be evidence-based. The problem that the regulators face is that they have a legislative mandate to protect the public interest, public safety. And they're in a position where they have to issue some sort of guidance on how things are going to, to be done. It's, I think it's, it goes without saying, it's to be expected that they're going to err on the side of caution. Because if they don't, and if something goes wrong, they're going to be totally blamed for whatever goes wrong. And just for our defense here, we're talking about protocols and to protect the public. Excuse me. We are talking about our own lives on the line because we are on the front line. We are working with those people. So the first one who's going to be the casualty of those stats will be ourselves. So I'm pretty sure that if you compare the risk that we're taking, just to try to have a, a smart um, decision or smart discussion, we are risking way more out there. We're risking our neck because all the profession we're talking about, we are on the front line with those aerosols. And still, we're still asking to have a smart discussion and proof. So you cannot just take the moral high ground and saying that this is the safe way to go. They are not exposed. We are. We should be more precautious than they are. I agree with you that, that all of the practice owners and all of their associates are on the front line. But the regulator has a different perspective. And so from that, in, in that situation, there is there's an, an internal conflict be, in, in the industry between the regulator's perspective over here and the clinician's perspective over here on the front lines. I'm not saying that the regulator necessarily has the right perspective. What I am saying is that history tells us, and logic I think tells us, that the regulator will be more conservative in their approach and more restrictive in their approach because that's what they're mandated to do and to be. Now, it may turn out to be that a year from now, as more evidence becomes available and as the professional discussion continues, maybe the regulators will realize that they were too stringent in their approach. Maybe they will start to relax some of the restrictions. Maybe they'll change them or drop them completely. But I think we have to live with the fact, whether we like it or not, that the regulators are going to start at, from a point of being conservative and restrictive. And they may loosen, they may relax the situation from there. They can't afford to do it the other way around, because if they start off in a very relaxed mode and find that it isn't working, the result of the relaxed approach is a resurgence of infections. That destroys their credibility as a regulator. And you also have to help the, regular, the, the, the regulator or the decision maker accountable for the side effect of the, the, the decision. And you and I agree on this. If they start 
to just tighten all the screws, half this industry will disappear. So at this stage here, it's right. You have to look at the remedy. Is it causing more harm than the problem itself? So I know that by the end of the day, the regulator will have the final word. What I'm trying to say here is, is there any way for us? And we're doing this at this stage, just talking together. We're bringing this to the attention of the public and say, yeah, let's talk about it before somebody does in our place. But is there any way for us to, you coming from a different point of view, and I totally respect that, but how can we prevent that to happen? Or if that happened, how can smooth the transition? Because they will have to deal with the fact that we are here discussing about legitimate issues and they can just put that aside. But if we don't, we don't talk, we don't raise our voice, we don't ask a question out of due, all due respect, all they have is the fear of the population that let's do something. Now let's give them something else to think about. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. We, we should be giving them a lot to think about. We should be giving them as much in the way of information and different perspectives as we can give them. Because only by doing that will we get a good decision from them, a proper decision in the circumstances. The problem is that we don't have all the information at the field level. They don't have all the information at the regulatory level because we've only been in this game for two months maybe three. We don't know an awful lot about COVID-19. We have partial evidence. The evidence that we have is coming from all different sources around the world, as you, as you just said. Uh, you know, there's, there's different evidence even and different interpretations of the same evidence sometimes, which is, which is normal among uh, among well-educated people of goodwill who want to arrive at uh, proper conclusions. You can, you can give the same evidence to two, two scientists, two doctors, two dentists, and they will not give you identical answers because they bring with them different analytical perspectives, different backgrounds, different intellectual approaches on how to analyze and then recommend based on whatever evidence is in front of them. So all we can hope in the circumstances is that we can provide the regulators with as much evidence as possible from as many different sources. And then hope that we are in a position to engage with our regulators in constructive dialogues so that when they make a decision, it's a decision that is appropriate for our industry in Canada. On that, John, let me give you some hope. And I'm trying to work with you here, honestly. It's um, since the beginning of this crisis, and those are facts, two weeks prior to uh, the, the pause, we were, writing, we were writing to our, our board saying that, what about teledentistry? Is there any way for us to make our consultation safer? Because people will just be scared. And nobody will have even imagined the kind of impact that decision maker will be taking. And this, we're not talking about the boards, we're talking about the governments. It was a big no in Canada because there was more prior, there was other priorities to go on. And then the pause hit us. I think it took two weeks, nothing happened. Then we have been announced that we're going to have another month 
a month and a half in front of us, staying in, on, on, on pause. And then uh, I started realizing that we had to do something. So we started to digging into teledentistry, but telemedicine was always on the rise. So we brought a summit of teledentistry within four countries on board. And about six hours later, we have uh, a communication from our board in Quebec saying that these are the guidelines to use teledentistry. I'm not saying that we push that, but I'm saying that the fact that the discussion is out there is giving the regulators more um, information to deal with. And since we use the fact that there was already okay in 50 states in the United States, that helps a lot. In France, they never heard of it. And I was talking to a mayor. <laughs> Two days later, the health minister of France was talking about the industry. Once again, we have no way to say that we did that, but the discussion was out. That was maybe just a stroke out of luck. A colleague of mine about three weeks ago was saying that we should have as dentists the capital to test. We got that out. We had a summit talking about how can we just address this and we didn't have any real methods to make sure that we can test people officially. Yesterday, Canada legalized the fact that dentists will be testing amongst with other profession uh, patients. So I do have hope in the regulators because they need us to work with them. But if we stay silent in the back and just wait for a directive to come, you have to live with it. Now, if you help them moving forward and saying that, okay, this other kind of stuff that might be possible, this is what other people are doing. Now it's, we have a dialogue, even if we never sit down in front of them, because you know that we're not dealing with any boards here because we're international. We just talk about dent amongst dentists, but it is a way to, uh, influence, I'm not saying affect, but influence the decision maker to go on one side or the other or the other. And this was two proofs within about what a week, a month and a half about the fact that if we're proactive and are moving ahead of the, uh, the question, they will use our answers as an alternative. And I, and this, uh, I think we're, we're really saying the same thing, just using different words here. It's, it's about providing input to the regulatory process from the profession and not just leaving the regulators to sit in some governmental building to make decisions in a vacuum. Yeah, let's hope them. <laughs> you know, in, in your particular case, you focused on the issue of teledentistry and you made some very significant progress in moving that issue forward because you could present evidence to the regulator that showed that teledentistry had been accepted and had worked successfully elsewhere. These are, these are the kinds of approaches that will be successful in moving dentistry forward as a profession and an industry. And you, you asked the question at the beginning of our conversation, and, and we're coming back to it now. You know, how does this profession enhance itself? How does it come out of this situation better and stronger? Well, it's by being constructive and innovative in many different ways on many different issues. Teledentistry is a prime example because it is something that's actually happened during the COVID-19 problem. 
testing in dental offices is a recognition by the regulators that dental clinicians have a role to play in the broader medical sense, a broader role to play than they've ever played in the past. Because dentists have never tested for things in the past like this. Now the role is being expanded. And if it's expanded to testing for COVID-19, a year from now or five years from now, it will have expanded further into other forms of testing, whatever they may be. This is how the world moves forward. And it moves forward in a positive way. So here's my question, sir. You have means that we don't have as uh, individual dentists. So let's say that we can come on, uh, on board with an idea that we have the, the past and we have the, the fact that the profession is made of individuals like us and you have a means of pushing things to the big leagues. How can we make this an opportunity to work together and to, to move ahead with a win? I'm not trapping you here. <laughs> it's, it's no, I, 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 no I, I know that. Um, there, are, there are probably several different ways uh, because there are several different models where one can bring dentists together and, and move from the very decentralized profession to an approach where there is strength in numbers. That's really the essence of a DSO or a corporate dental group is strength in numbers, financial strength, uh, procurement strengths for supplies, efficiencies in operations. It's all just strength in numbers, economies of scale. Whatever phrase you want to use, that's what it all boils down to. So it comes back, I guess, to my, my underlying feeling as a businessman coming to dentistry, not a dentist in dentistry. I look at the industry and I say to myself, there are too many small practitioners in this industry. I look at the city where I'm headquartered in Toronto. We have thousands of dentists in this city and the average practice size is now so small because of the competition in the marketplace among those thousands of dentists. Average practice size is so small that it's difficult for a practice to sustain itself given the small patient bases that many dentists have. But they struggle on and they, they are satisfied with what used to be a high standard of living, a good return on their investment for all the years that they spent getting their education as a dentist, that has eroded over time. Many GPs now have modest incomes. They're still in the 1%, but they're not at the top end of the 1% in the way that they used to be. Things things have changed in certain parts of the market. Um, 
a dentist who has a thousand patients in Toronto has a hard time surviving. That may sound difficult to believe for dentists in other parts of the country, in some other parts of the country, but the overhead for running a practice in Toronto is so high that a practice with a thousand or twelve hundred patients, which used to be quite sufficient to produce a good income for a sole practitioner, isn't sufficient to do that anymore. We're faced with a situation where the economics of this profession have slowly changed over time and will continue to change. And they will continue to move in the direction of favoring larger, stronger operators. So you asked, how do we, how do we move in the direction of improving the profession, making the profession better for the dentists in it? And the patient. Because <laughs> many of the day, there's no patient, there's no dentist. <laughs> no, that, that's true. That's what we're going to I think there needs to be a rethinking of the ownership model in dentistry. Owning a practice has been the holy grail in dentistry forever. One graduated from dental school, you went out and maybe spent a little time as an associate to hone your skills and become better at what you did clinically. And then you went and bought a practice because ownership was, that was the statement that you had made it successfully as a dentist. And then you spent the next 20 or 30 or 40 years of your life as a sole practitioner in a small office. The economics of the business make it very difficult to support that business model now. If you look at other countries, and this goes back to your issue of using information from other countries and other markets to inform us here about what might work better here, the size of the average dental practice in many other countries is much larger than it is in Canada in terms of patients per practice, particularly in the highly competitive urban markets in this country. Other countries subconsciously perhaps have adopted a business model that has moved towards larger practices with groups of dentists in larger offices because that's what works and provides financial stability, provides financial capacity to weather downturns and problems in the industry, provides the opportunity for, as the phrase has become popular in the last few years, one-stop shopping for patients so that they can have specialty procedures done in their home offices without having to be referred out. The larger offices provide a much higher degree of function than small individual offices. It doesn't mean that dentists necessarily lose clinical autonomy. It doesn't mean they lose the ability to be 
high-performing dentists, but they do it in a different business setting. That's all it means. One of the DSOs uh, in the United States, a name that I'm sure is familiar to you, um, specializes in uh, larger offices, multifunctional offices. Great expressions. And that model works extremely well in providing a multifunctional setting for patients. Well, if we're trying to, to enhance the patient experience, that's what we want to be doing. We don't want to be sending patients out the front door of our office every time they have to have a specialty procedure. We don't want to send them down the street for the endodontic procedure or the prostodontic procedure we want to be able to deliver those things in-house. It makes the patient feel much more comfortable if they come in for the specialty procedure and they walk down the same hallway and as their GP practice is on and they happen to see him and they can wave to him on the way to their specialty procedure. It enhances their level of comfort psychologically it probably enhances the, the, the efficiency for the delivery of the treatment. And it enhances the financial and operational stability of the practice because the practice is no longer sending its patients out to somebody else and losing revenue. There's been a lot of resistance to that model because that model only works if you have an office that is big enough physically with multiple operatories to house a large, a larger number of dentists, some of whom are specialists. It doesn't work for the sole practitioner. And as long as there is a mindset in the industry that ownership of the small individual practice is the thing that is most important, we're never going to progress to being able to optimize our patient's experience. And let me just we don't, have to have, we don't have to have corporate dental groups to do it, but we have to change the business model for treatment delivery. Let me help you on that, because you know that we just finished with, uh, it was my book, but I joined in with leaders of three countries around the world to write a book about relevancy. What is the, our profession uh, be facing next? And I have to agree with everything you said, uh, change is coming and things cannot stay the way they, they were, because uh, even if we were surviving, it's been too long for us to wait to update ourselves to the new reality. So we know that change is coming. We don't know which way this change will be, but we also know that as dentists, what kept us from moving to the next stage? Because our relevancy went from 100% to 3%. And this numbers of that, you had 100 appointments before, now you have about three, if you're lucky. And society could have just put you aside like this and you were irrelevant. <laughs> this is maybe what we've been through for the last two months. So there's no ego anymore. Now you see the truth. So we know that the pain is there and the hard part is coming. What I am um, 
trying to say here is the glass ceiling that we are facing with a risk of 3% is because we were too busy competing amongst ourselves to find patients than to, to work as a, a group to, to, to further ourselves. And I think that the fact that the, you have centralized organization and we're not talking about the boards of, that, of uh, the regulatories, that's a, a way for us to regroup and to organize. But the United States, they also have the problem that that hasn't changed a thing. They are exactly where they are today within those umbrellas. So here's my challenge, and this is, I'm, I'm lending a hand here. How can we learn from everybody <laughs> and try to come out of this building better, stronger? And right now we have two business models that is opposing. Is there any way for us to build together, to come up with maybe an alternative? where every strength can be put um, in, in leverage and just leaving the, the past behind. And this will be the hope of, my hope, usually I'm asking my interview, uh, the people I interview, what is your hope? Now that I take the time to speak with you, I have a hope. If people like you and I can talk, there might be a chance for us to get out of this uh, ahead. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you. I think one of the key issues for dentistry is that as a profession, and I'm, I, I talk about the profession separately from the industry, if you know what I mean. Profession, in my view, means the clinical medical side of dentistry, and the industry means the business side of dentistry. As a profession, on the clinical medical side of dentistry, we have to get back to showcasing the, the medical competency and the level of medical sophistication that dentistry brings to our patients. We, we intentionally let that go for a period of time because we tried to create a patient experience that was a pleasant patient experience. And we thought the way to do that to make patients comfortable was from a social point of view and a physical point of view and how offices were designed and how patients were dealt with. I think what you've just pointed out and you did it exceedingly well is that dentistry was reduced from 100% of relevancy to 3% because Dentistry could not demonstrate that it had a sufficient degree of medical competency and sophistication to withstand the impact of COVID-19 in its practices. That's why practices were shut down for everything but emergency treatment. If, so here's a, a, a potential scenario for you. And this is a, a could have, should have statement, but it shows what might have happened if we had gone a different route over the last five or 10 years with dentistry. Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> if dentistry had become more concerned about clinical issues that could be addressed fairly easily and straightforwardly, things like air quality management, things 
business-like operatory design to ensure no cross-contamination between operatories, no cross-contamination between the operatory and the hallway because there's no door on the operatory. Um, if, if we had thought about those issues 10 years ago or 15 years ago, when we were building all of the modern practices, we would have built the practices differently. We would have built a clinical model that was a different clinical model. And when COVID came around in March, we would have been much, much better equipped to deal with it. We wouldn't have been reduced to 3% of relevancy because we could have said, we don't have an aerosol issue that we can't deal with because we have air quality management in all our, our offices. We don't have a cross-contamination issue between operatories and hallways or between operatories and operatories because we have doors and walls. I have to stop you on this. Until March this year, Dental Clinic was one of the safest places to be on Earth. We could withstand any, anything and COVID-19 happened. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's like a war against terrorists. You never know where the next threat is coming. No, you, you don't. But some people can foresee, in a broad sense, where the areas of risk are. We had an opportunity, and there were voices in our, in our industry, in the profession, on the clinical side. You know, as all these new officers were being designed, and architects were having a field day. Interior designers were being paid tens of thousands of dollars to make the offices very, very aesthetically attractive without doors. There were voices being raised among clinicians who said, you know, we used to have doors on offices and we had them for a reason. And without doors, there are certain risk elements that are introduced that didn't exist before. And then we have to make a decision. Are we willing to accept those risk elements or not? Well, as, a, as both a profession and an industry, we chose to accept those risk elements. That was a decision that was made, oftentimes without a lot of discussion in the industry or the profession. But it was the way that, that the profession and the industry went. Now we have a whole generation's worth of offices that have to be retrofitted. It's going to be an expensive, time-consuming, frustrating, difficult process. Yeah, if you want to do this, the cost, it's about 25 to 35% of the value of your clinic, depending on how many portraits you have and how many walls you have to put up. We did the math. This is what we were pushing the realtors to look at and say, we agree with the fact you need to protect the public, but please do so in a smart way, not just responding to fear. No, I, I agree with you. The whole concept of having to retrofit, physically retrofit a practice to meet these new guidelines can be very expensive. And we will do so for the protection of the public not to ease the, the, the regulatory board. 
So again, what we am asking here, and I know that they have the final word by the end of the day, but as dentists, and at this stage, you are part of the industry too. So I love the fact that we're taking time to, to exchange and to talk together. Let's be proactive, put facts or put at least alternatives on the table so they have more things to deal with, but their own fear and agenda. I, I agree. And part of the problem is the evidence at this point suffers from two problems. First of all, it's incomplete. And secondly, some of it is contradictory, coming from different areas of the world. You know, we have some evidence that tells us that aerosols will stay in the air for 30 minutes. We have other evidence that says three hours. Those are so different that they are polar opposites in what they, they cause a regulator to look at. The regulator can't afford to make the mistake and say, we'll regulate on the basis of 30 minutes if in reality it's three hours because the regulator is screwed. So at this stage, let me prove to you how this crisis has changed all of us. My, my peers might want my head for this, <laughs> but I have just got a book out about relevancy. I'm the main author, but I have to, I, I did work with a lot of great and smart people writing this book. We get the book out by this Wednesday, but our talk was supposed to be scheduled for last Friday. For technical reasons, we have to postpone it. Here's my, my offering. If you are willing to keep uh, this discussion, not just with me, but with the rest of the profession, please read the book. And if you, you want, include us a chapter about your perspective and I'll push for it, I'll get it inside the book. Because what I do think it's, let's stop fighting to, to know who's right, and let's get together to find the right answer instead. <laughs> the right answers are the answers that optimize the experience of our patients in our, in our practices. That's all it boils down to. We all have the same job, and the job is, to use the information that's available to us to come up with the answers that create the best, safest, most clinically efficacious patient experience that we can deliver. That's all it is. It's all for our patients. And this the hope that you're giving me today. If somebody at the head of one of the DSO in Canada, you have, you said, uh, a thousand dentists under your your umbrella? Is that what, what I understood? No, but you know, in, in Canada, we have some big players. Um, you know, Dental Court has, I don't know what the last count was, 500 offices roughly across the country. Um, you know, one, two, three dentists has, oh, they're pushing 200 now. Um, there, we have some big players here, but we're not as far along in this as you rightly pointed out earlier in the conversation, as some other countries. Uh, we have an opportunity still to affect the direction in which our profession and our industry goes in this country. Uh, we're, still, we're still going up the curve in terms of evolution in the industry. So here's the hope that you're giving me, and I encourage if you can keep this channel of dialogue open, to all my peers that be joining your um, business model, 
I hope that this kind of discussion will be something that can be maintained in the long run so we can build together, not just, uh, as somebody, some will say, just sell your soul and start receiving directive. I think that if COVID-19 have done something, it is we are on the same boat and we, we need to start, start working amongst each other because as soon as it hits us, we're all on pause, wondering what, how are we gonna survive this? <laughs> I agree with you. And perhaps my closing thought would be this. I published a somewhat lengthy article that you saw on LinkedIn last week. And one of the responses I got to that was from a practice manager in Ottawa who's responsible for managing two offices in Ottawa. And the practice manager said, this is all doom and gloom. Yeah, I read you're, not, you're not telling us what to do to avoid all these problems. And my response to the practice manager was, it's only doom and gloom if you don't have a plan to deal with it. It's our job as leaders in this profession and this industry to create the plan that moves the whole industry forward. Thank you, sir. Thank you to have taken the time to share with us, to taking the time to uh, to oppose our views <laughs> and see how we can come out of this ahead. And I'm reinitiating my my invitation for those people who knows me. Everything I say, even in front of the screen, it's, it is all true. And I will get, uh, walk those, those words. If you, you're willing to, uh, to contribute in relevancy, which is a book written by peers, mainly about our reflection about how we should approach uh, dentistry post-COVID, how we have to, to rebuild and to rethink the way we are. Uh, I'll fight your way through, but I'll make sure that your chapter is included. <laughs> I would be very interested in contributing because being a businessman and not a clinician, I think I probably bring a somewhat different perspective. Whether it's a terribly popular one or not, I don't know. But I think it can help in the overall discussion. This is not, yeah, it's not about popularity. It's about the fact that people have to wake up to know that, okay, you will have to turn right or left but you have to do something. You cannot just hold on to the past and thinking that that hasn't changed because this is where the danger will come. There are three decisions that we can make in this situation. We can do the right thing, we can do the wrong thing, or we can do nothing. Nothing is the worst decision. It's better to act even if we do the wrong thing because then once we observe what we've done, if it turns out to be wrong, we know that we can correct it and do something better and different. So that's the wisdom of the day. Better wrong than worse. <laughs> better wrong than nothing. <laughs> get, me a get, uh, back, get me a copy of your book uh, or, or a chapter or two out of it so I can get... Actually, by, by, by Wednesday, it will be out. If you are free, Wednesday from... I'm not sure of the, the, the timeline yet, but maybe it's from two to four or one to two to three. But we have an issue with Facebook uh, airing up at, at this stage because everybody is airing up at one. We're getting the book out. Um, and there's going to be surely a second or third edition. But since I am the, the main author, I just <laughs> have to produce a, a few people. But my goal here was to prove that going forward, we need to have a dialogue. 
with all the parties. And if we are asking the realtor to hear us, I think that the first thing we have to do is to talk amongst ourselves. And then seeing that there's an en the enemy here is simple, is to do nothing and to be left uh, behind. That's the enemy. That, that's the greatest danger right now because the decision to do nothing, and it is a decision. It's not just a vacuum. It's a decision to do nothing. Doing nothing means that dentistry gets pushed even further down in relevancy from 3% to something lower than that. <laughs> Help me out here. I'm trying to, to find hope. <laughs> <laughs> so the job here is to get the curve going up from 3% and not down from 3%. Yeah. Now we have to, to, to raise the, the curve, not to flatten it. <laughs> that, that's right. No, no, we don't want to flatten the 3%. <laughs> Uh, send me some information about Wednesday and times and getting together and whatever. I'd be happy to participate. All right, John, thank you so much. I think that this is just the beginning of a dialogue, not the end of it. And um, hopefully we'll be reading from you soon. <laughs> All right, good. I'll look forward to it. Take care.